Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Living Courageously Exposed, hosted by Big Inside Out Adventures and your truly Jennifer J. Saunders and friends, Tommy Jake. So today, I have a really cool person from across the pond who I met a week or so ago, and uh, after having a conversation with him, I just knew that he had to come and be a part of this because you guys are absolutely going to love him. I have with me today, Stephen Robinson, and let me just share a couple things about him. He is an international inspirational speaker, and he helps clients realize their potential and overcome phantom barriers. I love that word, phantom barriers. He teaches them how to face their fears head on. He changes lives, he inspires, he motivates, and he entertains the world. One of the things that really interested me about him is he says, how many times do you hear people say, I'd give my right arm to dot, dot, dot. Well, you guys are going to love Steve's story. And I'm just going to leave that dot, dot, dot hanging right there and introduce you to Steve and uh, why he says that statement. So, Steve, how are you today? I'm very good. Thank you very much. And thanks for inviting me along to your podcast. Oh, you are so welcome. I, uh, you know, the podcast, Living Courageously Exposed, sometimes I think people have it in their minds that this is this is a podcast about how we might overcome some hard things and then everything works out beautifully and you know life is perfect and happy and that's not exactly what living courageously exposed is all about however sometimes those are the stories and so i just want to make really clear for those who may be listening that these people that i'm talking with do have success stories but they also have some being rolled around in the dirt and things that they're continuing to work on things that they still learn and move through and and i feel like steve has some of those amazing stories and you guys are just going to love what he has to say so steve anything else you want them to know about you wow well i suppose i suppose uh, that's a difficult one isn't it what would i like people to know about me i'd like them to know that i realized at a young age that anything was possible and and i realized that i guess I would say from a young age, from my 20s, and that's mainly because I'd been thrust into a situation that I never thought I'd be thrust into. Right. And all my opportunities and, and ideas of work had totally changed. So I really had to change my mindset. I know that's a popular word, and I don't like to use it because it's, it seems to be a word that everybody uses. Right. And I never thought about it as being a mindset. I just thought about it as being a way that I thought of things, which I guess is a mindset. Right. And I realized I had to change my idea and my perspective on life had to change, which of course it had changed because it had radical things happen to my body. And I was, right. I was totally physically changed, which changed my idea of how to approach everything as well. But I never expected I would be successful at anything. I was really just trying to survive and yeah. trying to enjoy myself. Now I was in this position. I've not mentioned the position yet because we've got to get to that point. I know. I love how we're just keeping them hanging about what this radical change for you is. And, and we're just going to keep them hanging because I actually would like to hear a little bit about Steve as a young boy. Like, what, what were you like? What was life like for you? Um, you know, how did you get along with your schoolmates and things like that? Well, first of all, I was born into, into poverty and into a really poor area in Leeds, which is my city in the county of Yorkshire in the north of England. And the area was called Boogie Park. And you think, well, it sounds almost like a song, doesn't it? Like Gorky Park, but it was called Boogie Park. <laughs> and that's because all the houses were infested with bugs, with, with cockroaches and wood lice and, and silverfish, which were bad for your respiratory system. But fortunately, during the 60s, when I was a young boy, there was a program of slum clearances and they pulled the place down and they incinerated the land to kill all the bug infestation. And we were moved out to a different estate. 
And but it, they were all. I were always living in council estates, uh, which is like a social housing estate in in the in the states in America. And yeah, I just I just really struggled. never had any money. I was from a single parent family. My father was a violent man, and my mum had to get rid of him when I was four, just because she didn't want us to be subject to that violence as well. Right. So it was a hard and tough upbringing. But school, I hated. Oh, I really hated. I felt like a prisoner in school. From my from my first days, I was always running away and scaling the walls and the fences and running back home. I just hated it. And as a consequence, I was then threatened with, with care. If I stopped running away from home, I would be put in care and that would be the last I would see of my mum. While well, I was running away from school because I wanted to be with my mum, not because I wanted to put him somewhere else. So that was really tough. And then, so you know, I went... I went one thing, sorry to interrupt you. Um, so those of us in the United States may not know, myself included, what care means. Is that is that like juvenile detention? We, we care. care is more like... Um, we call it social care, which means where the child is taken away from the parents and is put into some sort of institution, okay. not a prison as such. But um, yeah, we just refer to it as, as social care, okay. which generally is just just young people being taken being taken away from home. Which of course we don't um, you don't want that as a child. It's not ideal, is it? You want to be at home with your parents. Right, right. So, so it might be similar to our foster care system, possibly. Exactly the same. I would imagine foster care, but we have two types of care in the UK. And foster care is one where you put with another family. And then we have another type of care, which is almost like incarceration. You go into a children's home and you're not in care. Somebody looks after you in a home and there's multiple children there. So that was the the option that I was given. Well, I wasn't given an option. That's where I was going to go. Right. if I didn't stop running away from home. So basically, a prison for children. Thank you for like explaining that for us. And I'm really glad that, uh, I'm hoping the story is that you opted not to be in care. I did opt not to be in care. So I stopped running away from school, but that didn't mean that I wanted to be at school. Right. I really didn't. And, and I really struggled with being there. And it turned out later on that I found out much, much later when I was an adult that I had undiagnosed dyslexia. And that's why I was struggling with education. Okay. But I didn't realize that until many, many years later. Yeah, it, it, it was an awful time. But then when I went to middle school, because we had a, a three-tier education system in the UK, it's changed slightly now. And when I say three-tier, we had a primary school where you went from the age of five and you stayed until the age of nine. Then we had a middle school where you went to middle school at the age of nine and stayed until you were 13. Then we went to high school where we stayed from 13 to the age of 16 and possibly stay another two years to do what we call sixth form, which was for further education before university. Well, my middle school was okay, but it was still pretty bad. But my high school was a nightmare because I'd also started with acne and I was an underdeveloped young little boy when all the other boys were like young men. So I was really tiny and I had really bad acne and I was really badly bullied for that. So... Consequently, I only attended school two days out of five, and, and that wasn't official. And it wasn't truant. I don't know whether you call it truant over there. We call it truant, whereby you go to school, you sign the register to say, yes, I'm here, and then you disappear. Right. So that's what we call truant. Okay. But, we probably call it the same. It's been a long time since I've been in school. I know that we have, you know, tenants policies, and, and if you miss so many days, you've got to come back. Um, you know, truant yes, was yes. for us when I was a kid as well. So I think it's a word that... Uh, that we're familiar with over here. So 
going to school only two days a week. What did you do those other days, Steve? Well, to be honest with you, I used to stay at home because I was so anxious and so upset and so worried and, and, and scared of the bullies. I used to stay at home. But on one of my days off, I had to go on a friend's motorbike. Now, I don't know why he wasn't at school. Maybe he was older than that, but had, I, I, I don't even think about it. And I can't even remember why. But he had this motorbike and I had to go on it. And it was brilliant. And I loved it. And he said to me, you can buy this motorbike, Steve. He, want, he wanted £10 for it, which let's assume £10 is $10. It's not, but let's just call it £1, $1. It makes everything, translation, really easy. Yeah, okay. So he said he wanted like £10, which is $10. But I had no money. So I searched the house to see if I had anything of any value, but I didn't because I was a kid that was walking to school with holes in his shoes. And my mum used to cut out cardboard insoles for my shoes so my feet didn't fall through the holes in the bottom. But, but I searched, because we were super poor, so I searched the house, I searched the house, and I found this old camera, and it was called an Instamatic camera. And you probably had them in the States. You'd take a photograph, and you'd pull the film out of the back, and you'd wave them around, and they'd yeah. develop in front of your eyes. Yeah, they were like the predecessors to the digital camera. Polaroids, exactly, yeah. So it was a Polaroid, I think. Was it a Polaroid, or was it, was it a Kodak? No, it was a Polaroid. And I had this camera, and I think my auntie might have given me it, but I couldn't use it because the films were so expensive. So I'd relegated it to a cupboard and I'd left it there. So I had this camera and I thought, I wonder whether I can sell this camera. And I sold that camera to my friend's sister for five pounds. So it was halfway to getting the motorbike. I love and then it. I went out and I thought, I'm having this motorbike. I thought, nothing's going to stop me getting it. I'll do whatever it takes. And I went out and did all these awful jobs that I hated doing, like washing people's cars and, and gardening. And I hated doing those types of things. But I managed to get the 10 pounds and I managed to buy the motorbike. And I often say to people, you know, sometimes in life, you know, we have to do the things we don't like to get the things we want. And, you know, and it's true, isn't it? Not always, you know, do we like the things we do, but we're doing them for a specific reason. So, and I bought the motorbike and it was brilliant and I loved it and I was great on it. So suddenly there was something I was good at and I'd never been good at anything. And also girls had never looked at me at school. I was invisible because I was a spotty kid. Now, it didn't matter about the women because I had a motorbike. And when I was a, just a young guy at 13, I be a motorcyclist forever. And I would be happy forever. And that's all I ever wanted to do. And I, I met this friend of mine. We used to go out cycle, motorcycling together. He was 12, I was 13. And then there was another guy that wanted to join us. his bike. But he wasn't a guy. He was a 30-year-old man. And he wanted to join me and my mate. We were just young teenagers. But this 30-year-old man couldn't do the things that we could do and he was really dangerous. So we avoided him like the plague, <laughs> which is a well-known saying over here in the, in the UK. Right. It just means we stayed well away from him because right. it was dangerous. We use that over here as well. So again, we're familiar with avoid it like the plague. Oh, you do? Well, if I say anything that's, that you don't <laughs> understand, just, just stop me and I'll explain it because I'm sure to say some English colloquialisms that maybe you think, well, what does that exactly mean? So we avoided this, this guy until the 19th of April, 1982, because that was a day that I couldn't avoid him anymore. Because this was a day that he thought he could do a daredevil-type stunt on his motorbike and jump over the top of me and my motorbike from a blind hill. Now, when I say a blind hill, it meant that I couldn't see what was coming up and he couldn't see what's coming down. Okay. Also, I thought, but he thought he could jump over me without me knowing he was there. But he, he couldn't make the jump and he landed on top of me instead. And oh, wow. his foot peg, I know it's hard, the foot peg ripped my arm off 
and it landed a hundred a hundred meters away, a hundred yards. Do you use yards or meters? We use yards, but some people do use meters over here. So yeah, we're a bit same over here. We're, we're mixed up between yards, meters, feet, inches. It's all mixed up. So yeah. it was a hundred yards, and that's where my my arm landed. And then the motorbike went into my chest and collapsed and punctured both my lungs, ruptured my liver, ruptured my gallbladder, ruptured my spleen, fractured my pelvis, and broke my leg. Okay, and I, I normally. I'm speechless. I, I'm like, I, I want. I don't even know what to say. Like, what were you? I was in a bad way. Yeah, were you cognizant that this was even happening? Like, were you aware? The strange thing is that I don't remember anything whatsoever. So, which is a, a godsend. The only thing I can remember is what people have told me, and I'm thinking, are these memories or are these just stories that I'm remembering? And I think to be honest with you, just stories that I'm, I'm remembering because yeah. I don't remember any of the incident whatsoever. I find that fascinating. Okay. And, uh, you know, when people are in these traumatic experiences, um, how are, you know, I believe that, that we have a spirit in a body, you know, and, and that how there's that protection that way that the spirit just, we just kind of, I don't know if it's blank out or if it, that's just how it protects us, that we don't have the memory of those instances in that. Cause I can't imagine how traumatic the memory of all that in the instant experiencing it would be most be a few people have said to me in the past why don't you have hypnotherapy to remember it and i said no i don't want to remember it right. you know can you imagine can you imagine going through that on a daily basis no. that's like your post-traumatic stress disorder that you're living with on a daily daily basis that must be hell to, to deal with that you've got to find some way to to cope your own coping mechanism to think of that as something else as opposed to get through life. Yeah, we're thinking about if you've got post-traumatic stress disorder or something like that, then it's very similar to what I would have if I could remember the accident. And I can totally appreciate where those people must be. But they must have to generate or get some way of coping, some coping mechanism to be able to deal with that. I haven't a clue how they would do that. But I'm sure there are techniques that help them visualize it and not think of it as reality and think about it as a dream, I guess. I, I don't know because I haven't obviously studied that, but I certainly know that I wouldn't like to be able to remember everything that happened to me. If I did, it, I would have to make it up and think of it as a dream. you know. And, but the thing is, things happen and the brain is fantastic. And if it's too bad for you to remember, the brain will just shut down and, and wipe that little bit of memory for you which yeah, fortunately is what it did for me. I find it so amazing and fascinating and such a blessing, like the, that really that is a function, but it's a protective measure. I think it's That's an amazing function of the brain, don't you think? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so you're now like been run over, landed on by this motorcycle and this guy that you've tried to avoid by like the plague and you have this now traumatic injury to what sounds like a vast majority of your body. And if I heard you correctly, Steve, you said that your arm was now a hundred yards away from your physical being. Did I hear that correctly? Yeah, you did hear that correctly, yes. A bit uh, scared even thinking about that. I mean, that would be traumatic at any age, but when you're young and you've got your whole life before you and, and it sounded like you were maybe starting to be in this place of getting a little bit of confidence and yes. overcoming some of this childhood stuff of being poor and being bullied and like you just might have had a space to dream so now you're in this place of this new world opening up and bam crazy incident happens your whole life changes how all my dreams have gone right how 
what is your mindset? What are you thinking at this particular time? It's a strange, it's a strange thing to happen, and you can't really imagine what it would be like. But from from like one second, because obviously it's taken more than this, because I've been in a coma for three weeks. But that means I'm totally out of it. So I've just gone out on my motorbike one day. The next time I wake up, I'm in hospital, and there's and there's this angel looking down on me, and I didn't realise, of course, the angel was called Janet, and she was a staff nurse in the in the local hospital, but she was an angel. I I didn't know whether I was dead or alive. It was really, it was really strange. I just, I didn't know what had happened. And they were telling me that I'd lost my right arm and they kept telling me that. And I didn't know why they kept telling me that because I could still feel it. And I didn't understand why they kept saying to me, you've lost your arm. And I thought, what are they talking about? It's right here. And it wasn't until I asked. I know, because yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Because the nerves that, and your brain, we're still sending signals to your arm. It's just that the arm isn't there. But somebody said to me a while ago, and I quite like this, they said, yeah, but your soul is still intact and your soul has got all limbs. And I thought, oh, I like that. Oh. I, quite, I quite like that. that Although I do beautiful. think that when I eventually... It's quite nice, isn't it, to think that my soul's still intact. Yes. I like that. And um, I often think, you know, all the people that have passed on before me, they're up in heaven or wherever they might be. I often think, I hope they're looking after my arm. <laughs> right. <laughs> They're taking good care of it for you. Yeah, take, take good care of that. Arm. You know, you've got to have a sense of humour. If you haven't got a sense of humour about these things, you'd be upset. But there's yeah. no point being upset. That is there's the no one thing. Yeah, your sense of humour is really one of the things that drew me to you. Besides your just, you know, great mindsets and sense, your humour about all of this was very endearing. And I love that we're getting to share that with everybody who's going to hear this. So thank you for sharing it. Oh, you're more than welcome. You're more than welcome. So at this point when I thought I'd met a nurse and she told me my arm's gone and then I realised it hadn't, I had a bit of a, a, an awakening because I also realised that all the things that had previously held me back also weren't real. They were like, they were like this phantom limb that I could feel. And I realised all the things that were holding me back were, were phantom barriers. And this is how I came up with the phantom barrier idea because I, I just realised they were asked that question. Exactly, they were exactly the same. The phantom limb, the phantom barriers, they didn't exist. And and I realised that, and I, it, it takes a long time to realise because you just think about things you would like to do and you see other people doing. If you just ask yourself, if somebody else can do it, why can't I do it? If somebody else can make something, why can't you make it? Right. It, it's all. It's all about. A, applying yourself a lot of times it's about money when it comes to manufacturing and making things but you know we can do anything we want to do it's just those limiting beliefs or phantom barriers that are stopping stopping us do them you just made a really what i i feel like is powerful point and that is it's all about applying yourself it really is but you know by losing an arm i felt liberated and it sounds weird because when I went to the toilet for the first time, because we all have to use a, a commode, which is like the portable toilet, because everybody was bedbound. Okay. And I asked the nurse if she would take me to a proper bathroom. And she did. But she'd forgotten that there was a mirror in that bathroom. And mirrors weren't allowed because, of course, everybody was mutilated and disfigured on my ward. Right. So, but she'd forgotten there was a mirror in that bathroom. And when I looked in the mirror for the first time, I realised that all my acne had gone. And I was so happy that my acne had gone that this was <laughs> this was the brunt of all my bullying. And, and just like that, overnight, one morning, I've gone out on my motorbike. The next time I've woke up, my acne's gone. And I was so elated that it didn't really matter that I'd lost the right arm. I had a little bit of an epiphany in that, in that bathroom. And, and my epiphany was I realised that I wasn't spotty anymore. 
But I also realised I wasn't shy because I'd been a really, really shy little boy, a really shy little boy. But because Janet and all the female staff had done all my personal medical care, I'd desensitised. And I realised I was no longer shy. And that was very liberating. And I also realised I wasn't a weak little boy because I'd overcome this major trauma and I'd survived. So all the three things that had held me back in life got, had gone just like that. So at which point, I, I, you know, I made it was a major realisation, but I also realised that all my job opportunity had gone. And I thought to myself, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Thought about it and thought about it. And I realised it was a great thing because no longer would I be constrained to a nine-to-five job and no longer would somebody tell me what to do. But I decided I'd go out there and I'd create my own future, my own destiny. I'd enjoy myself and I, hopefully I, I might earn a little bit of money on the way. I wasn't really worried about the money. I was, I was just wanting to go and try everything because now, of course, I had one arm and I'd never trained in school to be a guy with one arm. Never. Right. They never say to you, by the way, when you're in school, <laughs> by the way, these are the jobs you can do when you've got all your four limbs. But right. now let's just pretend you've lost a limb. What job do you want to do then? That isn't a class that they do. No, but can you imagine if we taught something like that, how our minds might open up? I mean, you can't imagine because you live it. Like, this, you know, wouldn't that be a good class? Right. Like, did you, in that moment when you're like, wait a minute, everything I thought I could do or was going to do is now gone. Um, well, first of all, did you have some moments of like, oh, crap, like depression, sadness, um, anger, resentment? Like, did you experience some of those things on your way to this new? Uh, no, well, uh, only a little bit, but not much. The, the, the first time I remember being really upset. Normally I'll say to people, no, never. But there were a couple of times that I was upset. Okay. The first time was when I saw my motorbike and it was so badly bashed up and damaged. I was so upset and I looked at that motorbike and I burst into tears because I realised at that point that was the end of my motorcycle days and I loved, I loved riding that motorbike and that's the only thing I wanted to live for and it was the only thing I did. And I, I remember saying to my parents at the time, to my mum and my sister, I said, if I was going to die, I wish I'd died then. Because I, and it's strange because it's like you don't want to go through this major, major trauma to have everything taken away and then to be told later on, oh, by the way, you're going to die when you're 80. I thought, well, why not just get it over and done with there? And then, you know, so, but I, so I was upset about the motorbike and I didn't really understand. And then I thought maybe I've been saved for something better. Oh. The next, so this is, so now I'm thinking, oh, something better is coming along. The next time that I was really upset was. I was sort of dating this young girl. I was a young guy. She was about a year younger than me. And I'd, I'd sort of been dating her, but we'd never really got it together properly. We were just sort of like teetering on the edge of maybe dating. And I, I thought she wasn't interested and I sort of like lost a bit of interest. But after my motorcycle accident, I'd lost total interest. And the thing is, I became a bit of a media celebrity in the local area because everybody knew the guy who lost his, his arm in this major accident. Right. So this girl then was telling everybody that I was her boyfriend. And I thought, but I'd, I'd, I'd got over it. I didn't want her by this point. And she turned up to the house one day with a bunch of flowers. And I've got to tell you, ladies out there, never think you can't buy guys flowers. We oh, love them. I love it. I, I absolutely, you know, I, I love those flowers. And I treasured those flowers. And I tried to keep them week in, uh, alive. And I managed to keep them alive for three weeks. I loved them. They were, they were lovely. But I didn't want her. But my friend said to me, Steve, don't dump her 
because you'll never get another girlfriend now you've only got one arm. Oh, wow. And that, wow. And that, and that, upset, me. that upset me. Yes. And that was a friend. But he, he can't have been thinking what he was saying because I was so raw out of hospital. I'd been out of hospital maybe a week when he said that. And wow. I thought... I thought, I hope, he's not, I hope that's not true. But I also realised at the time that I couldn't stay with somebody that I didn't want just on the off chance that I may never find anybody else. I mean, don't get me wrong, I didn't know whether I would because I'd, I'd never really experienced love at all. I was too young. And I thought, you start thinking, maybe this is the end of, of, my, of like a, a love affair. And, you know, so they were the two times that I was upset. Well, and I really appreciate you bringing up that point of, you know, I I was young and I didn't know, and, and I have other people now saying to me, you, you better hang on to what you have because you, you probably won't get another, like, how can people, yeah. and, and kind of heartsick that would feel, but I really appreciate what you said after that, Stephen, that's that you made the decision to not hang on to something that didn't, that you didn't love or that didn't feel right for you, even if you had no idea whether or not that kind of thing or something greater would come along. And I think that's really great um, words of wisdom for our listeners is how many of you are hanging on to things that don't really work for you in your life anymore because you're afraid you won't get it again or something better. And to just kind of contemplate that for yourself. So Steve, thank you for bringing that up. No, you're welcome. You know, a lot of people, a lot of people do that. And a lot of people think, well, I'll look for something better before I let this old thing go. Right. But what if you, but Why? If the old thing is something you don't want, let it go now and, and move on. It's like it's almost like forgiveness. You've got to forgive and you've got to forget. Even if you think, well, how can I forgive this? You've got to forgive, not for those other people, but for yourself because you need to move on from that. And you can't ever, while ever you're hanging on to something, you can't move on. Right. And, so and, and you need to move on. So true. Speaking of moving on, let's move on just a little bit farther. We have so much to talk about. And I know, I'm just a little time. A caveat, um, because we are getting a little crunched on time. Um, that if we need to, we'll, we'll do another interview, folks, and uh, we'll continue this story. So we'll just take these next few minutes and see where it takes us. And uh, Steve, if you're okay with that, we'll just we'll follow that. So yeah, yeah, for sure. Tell us about now you're in the stage and your mind is opening up and you're seeing new possibilities. Like, wait a minute. I feel free now because even though I don't have my right arm, were you right-handed, by the way? I was right-handed, yes. Yeah. So okay. people would say, well, you can't do this, surely. You can't do that. And I said, well, yeah. And they say, but you can't tie your shoelaces, can you, one-handed? And I said, yeah, of course I can. And I did a video, and it's on YouTube, so you can watch me tie my shoelaces one-handed. And I did it for a, a group of Spanish students that didn't believe in me. So I videoed it and put it online for them to watch. Surprisingly, the hardest thing was learning to write. I really didn't like writing. In actual fact, I can write lovely now, and I'm super neat, and it's really lovely writing. In fact, a friend said to me the other day, uh, she said to me, you've got girls' handwriting, Steve. And I said, well, what is girls' handwriting? She said, well, women, she said, write differently. And I said, well, how do they write? And she said, we don't have any sharp edges. They're all rounded and curved. And I said, really? And I looked at my handwriting. I don't know whether it's true or not, but it's an interesting story because she was right. (laughs) But mine was all curved and all lovely and, and no sharp edges. And I thought, well, I wonder if there's any truth to that. I don't know whether there is, but it's quite an interesting story. <laughs> but yeah, I, wa- I was initially right-handed. And okay. becoming I, left-handed was quite tricky. I would imagine, like I, you know, for myself, I'm not the most, uh, I don't have the most beautiful penmanship. I remember as a kid, um, my parents handed me a notebook and saying, here, 
practice writing your E's 500 times or practice writing, you know, oh, your wow. letters and, oh, I hated that. And so I, I thought as I was listening to you, I'm like, oh my gosh, like if I had to relearn how to write with my left hand, it would have been, ah, not that I couldn't have done it, but it probably wouldn't have been the most pleasant thing for myself because my right-handed writing wasn't all that great. <laughs> That should be a class. That should be another lesson in school, yeah. shouldn't it? Wouldn't it be interesting? Right with the with your non-dominant hand. Let's just make Let's... that a challenge for everyone who's out there. Steve and I are now challenging you to take what do we say? One day, like ten minutes for the next just week, try it. and write with your left hand. Just practice left-handed writing. I'm going to write that in my notes. It's left-handed. Yeah, writing. or if you left-handed, write with your right hand. You know, right. just so, do the opposite and, and just see what it feels like. Non-dominant handwriting. Yep, that's your challenge, folks, for the next week. few minutes a day. Wouldn't New that be interesting? See how, see how they get on. Let's see some samples of handwriting. Mine was absolutely atrocious. Yes, we would love to see what those samples are. And I'll, I'll make uh, notes of that, of where they can send us the samples so that we can Oh, I'd love to see it. it. Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah it certainly would. Let's talk about a little bit about, let's go into... Now, what do you do for work? You're a young man, you're recovering, and, you know, you said you, said you weren't really concerned about money, but you do... Well, I was, and I wasn't really, but it is a bit strange because now I'm an 18-year-old. Okay. I'm unemployable because there's no disability equality, so nobody would employ me. And also, I'm basically retired, but I'm 18 and, and I'm too young to be retired. Right. So... I thought, well, what do I do? And like I said, I never trained to be a one-handed person. So the only thing I could possibly do was try everything till I found the things that I could do and which was uh, sort of like suitable for a guy with one arm. The only thing is I was good at everything I did and I'd never been good at things before, <laughs> never. And I don't know why suddenly I became good at things. I think I had this newfound confidence and I, I had to become really patient because when you're two-handed, you can do things really quick. Now I was one-handed, I had to do things very slowly and very methodically and I had to think everything through and I had to think more than actually do. And I found I was really good at things because I thought about doing these, these tasks. And I became a motor mechanic. I'd actually trained to be a motor mechanic while I was, uh, I'd left school and gone to a technical college. So I was in my final year term when I had my motorcycle accident. So I was already trained as a motor mechanic. So I worked self-employed as a motor mechanic for a while. It didn't pay any money because as a motor mechanic, you want your mechanic to be really quick because you're paying him by the hour. Right. But I, was, I wasn't quick. I was good, but I was slow. So, of course, they didn't want to pay me double and triple the, the price they'd pay for anybody else. So it was difficult. So I started rebuilding motorbikes and selling motorbikes. And I did that for about two to three years. And I always wanted a jukebox when I was a young guy. And I, I just wanted one. I liked them. And a friend of mine rang me one day because he'd found a vintage jukebox on a demolition site that he was working on. And it was a vintage Seaberg jukebox from 1957. And it was wow. called the Seaberg KD200. And I managed to buy that jukebox. It was £100. And I borrowed the money from my grandma to buy it. And I bought the jukebox. And I had to pay for somebody to repair it. So that upset me. And then I bought another jukebox and I had to pay again to get it repaired because that didn't work. And by which point I'm thinking, I need to learn how to repair these. So I went out oh. and I bought three jukeboxes, all the same model that didn't work, but they only cost me £10, so like $10 each. So they were super cheap. I thought, if I can't repair them, I'll throw them away. Anyway, I managed to repair every one of them and I sold all the jukeboxes and I earned some money. And it was better money than I'd been earning with motorbikes. 
Wow. So, so what I'm hearing is this is kind of the start of, of what I believe to be your entrepreneurial journey. But I didn't realize what being an entrepreneur, I was just doing things. I was just spending my time learning new skills and earning money. And I quite enjoyed the bit when I earned the money and I quite enjoyed the challenge of repairing these jukeboxes. So I did that for a number of years. So really quickly, you're hitting on something that I think for myself is very important is that you enjoyed it. You, you weren't like... I only did it for that reason. You weren't so focused on the money and making an income. You were you were interested in learning new skills. You loved the jukeboxes and you enjoyed it. And I think that's really an important point for our friends out there listening to us who may be not in the situation that they've lost an arm, but in a situation where... You know, they might be starting a new career, trying to figure out what they're doing. It's find something that you enjoy uh, and start learning the skills. I think that's really powerful. So, again, uh, good points by Steve. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? You know, do the things you enjoy. If yeah. you can earn money, it's it. Great. Even if you don't earn money, if you're enjoying it, then you're spending your life the way you should be spending your life. Right. And so that's what I was doing. And I realized, and I thought, well, my time's not very valuable, I thought, at the time. But so I had all this spare time, and I thought, I'll just restore these jukeboxes. So I restored all these jukeboxes, and I had a great big collection of vintage jukeboxes and vintage one-armed bandits, which was a bit of a, a, a pun, me only having one arm. <laughs> oh, and man, that's funny. <laughs> so it was, I always use that one. People tend to like that joke. I like that one. <laughs> and so I restored all these bandits and jukeboxes, and then I decided I wanted to do something else. So I used to go to this local nightclub with a friend of mine. And we used to go quite regular. And my friend had met a young woman and didn't want to come out partying anymore. And I thought, well, what am I going to do? And one night when I was there, the DJ said to me, I haven't seen you for a, lot of, uh, a long time, Steve, a lot of weeks. Where have you been? And I said to him, well, it's my friend. I said, he's, he's seen this young woman. He don't want to come out with his mates anymore. So the DJ said to me, well, why don't you come down tomorrow night, he said. And I'll teach you to be a DJ. You can be the warm-up man. He said, but the benefit of this, he said, is you won't have to pay into the nightclub. He said, your, ah. drinks, your drinks will be free. He said, but you can't get drunk. He said, and I will teach you to be a DJ. And he said, you won't be sat at home waiting for your friend who lets you down all the time. That so, is really cool. And again, another opportunity you weren't necessarily looking for, but found its way to you. Never, never turn down an opportunity. Never, ever, because you just don't know where it will take you. In actual fact, I didn't go the following day because I thought he was joking. Right. And I saw, him, I saw him a week after, and he said, what happened to you? And I said, well, I thought you were joking. And he said to me, stop being stupid, he said. I'm not joking, he said. Get yourself down tomorrow night. So I did. And I worked there for three years as a warm-up man until they had two nightclubs to the owners of this place. And the DJ in the other nightclub, I'd fallen out with all the staff and he walked out just before his set was due to start at 10 o'clock at night. And they rang the nightclub where I was trainee DJ and they said, quick, quick, send Stevie B up to the other place because that was my DJ name, Stevie B. Stevie B, I, I love it. Yeah. So the, I said to my friend, I said, no, I said, no, Alan, his name was. I said, Alan, I can't do it. He said, why can't you do it? I said, I'm not a DJ. He said, okay, you're not a DJ. I said, no, yeah, yeah. I said, I'm not, so I can't do it. He said, he said, listen to me. I said, okay, I'm listening. He said, I want you to go up to this place, he said, to the other nightclub. He said, take your records with you. He said, take your microphone with you. He said, and I want you to pretend 
you're a DJ. He said, can you pretend you're a DJ? I said, yeah, I can pretend I'm a DJ. He said, you can put on a silly voice on the microphone if you don't want to use your own voice. Can you do that? I said, oh, yeah, I can do that. He said, <laughs> he said so go up and pretend you're a DJ. I said, yeah, yeah, I can do that. I'll go. So I went up and I pretended to be a DJ all night. And at the end of the night, when the night was over, I got a standing ovation and I got the job and I worked there full time for the next five years. I'm making this note that says, pretend you're a DJ and you'll find pretend. that that's what you actually are. I, oh my gosh, what a cool story. And we're actually going to end this portion of this with that one. But let, me leave, let me leave you with this. Well, let me leave you with this last thing. There's a really good saying, fake it until you make it. Right, right. And so tell me what that did for you, because you said now you did that for five years. What did that, when you realized, like, wait a minute, I just got a standing ovation. Maybe I am a DJ. What did <laughs> yeah. that do for your soul? Well, you're still thinking, well, I was only pretending I was a DJ. Right. But like, but my, then when my friend said, how do you do? I said, the love message that gave me standing ovation. He said, they don't know. He said, you're not a DJ. And, and, and his light bulb went on. And I thought, wow, no, they don't. They think I'm a DJ. And I'm only pretending I'm a DJ. And that's when that was one of my light bulb moments. And then my confidence grew in that arena. And I ended up by being a singer on stage. Wow, that is so cool. It's like it reminds me of a little story that I that I have similar where I was I was on the back of a boat in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, with a lot of people. We were there on a personal development group, and there were these guys that were actually real dancers. And they started dancing and, and I thought, I'm not a dancer, but in my mind, I'm like, I can totally pretend to be a dancer. And yeah, so they, you can. They, they would circle around and this guy would come into the center and he'd do his little fancy moves. And I'd just like go into the center and do like jumping jacks or some funny exercise move. I'd lay on the ground and kick my legs in the air. And, and it was really fun, the banter back and forth that started to happen between this guy and myself and the energy that I felt knowing that I was just totally faking, putting on a show, and yet and people were like, oh my gosh, it was such amazing dancing. <laughs> I'm laughing. <laughs> and so I guess I'm a dancer now. I don't know. I won the competition. So Yeah, really? Wow, I love right, that. Right? Somewhere there's a video of it. I'll have to find it. and uh, Yeah, put it online. Let's I'll watch. I'll put it online. But Steve, thank you for ending this segment of our, of our interview with that, that it's that, you know, fake it till you make it. I actually changed it for myself to be faith it till you make it. And because I do believe that we're more the thing that we're trying to fake than we believe that we are. And I know there's probably a lot of people listening today who, who are saying, man, I wish I could do a podcast or I wish I could be a speaker or I wish that I could fly an airplane or be a mechanic or, or whatever, a baker, or a banker, whatever. And you, you just told us through your experience that you could. And, and I want to reiterate that as folks, you can be the thing you wish you can be. You already are, or you wouldn't be wishing it. Steve, I am so excited. You and I will get together. We'll, we'll set another time to do the next part because ladies and gentlemen, this man has so many great things still to tell, to share with you. And I'm excited for him to tell a story. So if you have liked any part of this podcast today, I'm going to invite you to share it with just two people. Help us grow our audience. And also, if you want to help us continue putting out more great content, you can contribute, as well as those uh, setting, setting it out to two people that you know. And with that, 
I always say, believe in yourself or no one else can. Steve, how about you? That's totally correct. You've got to believe in yourself and know that you can do the things that you want to do. Awesome. We'll look forward to seeing you again and believe in yourself or no one else can. <laughs>